You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. In the summer of 1962, a famous Swiss theologian named Karl Barth visited the United States for the first time and the only time. And while he was here, he did, did a tour, much celebrated. He was on the cover of Time magazine, and he was doing a Q&A in Chicago when another Carl, this guy named Carl Henry, he's also a theologian, he was the editor of Christianity Today. During that Q&A, Carl Henry stood up, announced himself, Carl Henry, Christianity Today, and he asked a question about the factuality, historical factuality of the resurrection of Jesus. And apparently Carl Barth didn't like the question. And kind of got a little upset. And he pointed at Carl Henry. He said, did you say Christianity today or Christianity yesterday? And the, the room was full of mainline, non-evangelical uh, professors and clergy. And so they all had a good, good chuckle. But Carl Henry, undaunted, waited for his moment. And when the laughter died down, he said... In the words of Hebrews 13, 8, yesterday, today, and forever, sir. Verse 8, on the sameness of Jesus, his constancy, his theological word is immutability. He does not change. is such a precious truth for our Christian lives, and it is right at the heart of this final chapter in Hebrews. Last week, we saw that chapter 12 culminated with verse 28. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And then chapter 13 follows under this banner of acceptable worship. Worship. And chapter 13 is about all of life. Worship has been liberated from the temple of the first covenant to all of life. And that word acceptable, it appears again in verses 15 and 16. Look, look down to verse 15 and 16. It's translated pleasing in verse 16. That's good. It's, it's the same word. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good. That's part of worship. Do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So this section from the end of chapter 12 through chapter 13, verse 16, is knit together as a vision for practical Christian life that is pleasing to God. We might think of chapter 13 as a sketch of glimpses of how to please God. And we're going to see that pleasing language again next week in verse 21. But before we spend the rest of the message under this banner of pleasing God, Let's first put chapter 13 in the context with the 12 chapters that have come before. All right, so kids, 
A little review. Review from 2023 and grown-up kids. What has been our repeated refrain from the beginning of Hebrews back in January? Jesus is better. That's right. Jesus is better. He's better than the angels, chapters 1 and 2. Better than Moses in chapter 3. Better than Joshua in chapter 4. Better than Aaron in chapters 5 to 8, the high priest. The, he, and he's better than the first covenant and its place and its priests and its sacrifices. Jesus makes better promises and he gives us a better hope and a better country and he's the better possession over all other worldly possessions. And so in saying again and again that Jesus is better, the message of the first 12 chapters has been at least this, Jesus is pleasing. He is gain. He is good. And not just good, but better than the standard of comparison that comes before. He makes our souls happy with the very joy of the eternal God. Jesus, as the second person of the triune God, shares in the infinite happiness and unshakable bliss of the Godhead. And so as we say in our leadership affirmation of faith, God is supremely joyful in the fellowship of the Trinity, each person beholding and expressing his eternal and unsurpassed delight in the all-satisfying perfections of the triune God. This God is so blessed, so infinitely happy, so satisfied in himself, so full of joy that he overflows in pleasure to create and even better, to redeem his people from sin and from death by coming himself in the person of his son as our true high priest, chapters five to eight, and as the true sacrifice, chapters eight to 10. So to this point, for 12 chapters, the refrain in one sense has been about the pleasantness of Jesus, the very joy and blessedness of God himself in himself, shared with us in and through Jesus and by his spirit. And when our souls come to taste and enjoy the pleasantness and the joy of God himself, and that Jesus is better by any standard of comparison, then what do we want to do when we've tasted and we've seen? Well, for one, we want our lives to be pleasing to God. It pleases us to please him, which doesn't mean that there's a sad God that we make happy by anything that we do. There's no sad God. To be God is to be infinitely happy, infinitely pleased, quite apart from anything we say or do or anything outside himself. But, amazingly, this God gives us the dignity of pleasing him. 
in some modest measures, yes, as echoes of his own pleasantness. So C.S. Lewis, at the end of his sermon, The Weight of Glory, says it like this. He says, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son, it seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. It is grace to be forgiven. And it is grace to become holy. It is grace to be pitied by God. And it is grace to be pleasing to God. So Hebrews 13 gives us a vision for the pleasing life, the Christian life, a life that is first pleased with God and then seeks to please him in some real way with what we say and do and think and feel. So then what does it look like to live such a life, pleased in God, believing that and enjoying that Jesus is better? Captured in six glimpses here, at least, in chapter 13. So six glimpses of the life that pleases God. If Jesus is better, and we know it and believe it, how do we live like it? Number one, we express our joy out loud. Verse 15, we express our joy out loud. That is, we praise him. Lips of praise are an aspect of lives that please him. God is pleased by heartfelt words of praise. So look at verse 15. Through him, that is through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So the God-pleasing life includes praise. And in some way, it's, it's rooted in praise. Praise is not peripheral. We acknowledge his name with our mouths. So we say out loud, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I worship Jesus. He saved me. He's my treasure. He's my Lord. Jesus is better. I commend him to you. And we gather here weekly on Sunday mornings to acknowledge his name together. So there's two aspects here to number one. We express our joy in Jesus both in professing our faith in him and in corporate praise, which we just did as we sang in Christ alone together. Such good application. In verse 15, before we even knew it, we clearly, publicly, unashamedly identify with Jesus and commend Jesus, and we make a habit of corporate worship beginning each new week, setting the tone, reconsecrating ourselves to him with joyful praise. And lips that praise him, 
lead to lives that please him. Number two, we fight to free our hearts from money. Verses five and six, we fight to free our hearts from money. Now, even 20 centuries ago, Christians could not free their hands from money. Even when Jesus was here, he talked about the temple tax. He miraculously produced a coin, made provision for his tax and Peter's. There was a money bag for Jesus and his disciples. We live in a physical world with physical needs served by coins and bills and credit cards that represent and transact value for the betterment of life and our loved ones and our society. In this age, there's no going without money, so to speak, as if that's a choice you can make. But what Hebrews warns about here is not money itself. It's if having and handling money itself is the problem. What Hebrews talks about is love of money, taking the money into our hearts. Look at verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So the question you might have is, how can I use money without loving money? And the verse continues with one instrument, one avenue, through being content with what you have. Do you have modest food and clothing? Then, in an important sense, you can be content. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 8, if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. It's enough. Sufficient. But then, Hebrews doesn't stop merely with contentment. He goes on to give us this remarkable personal reason to be content in the last part of verse 5. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. In other words, don't just be content with what you have. Be content with whom you have. Have another love than money, a bigger love, a deeper love that relativizes the pull of money on the human heart. In Jesus, we have God. If you have Jesus, you have God himself as your great possession. And he says he'll never leave you or forsake you. So if you have God, what more? Ultimately, in the end, finally, for all eternity, what more could you need? To have God is to have everything you ultimately need. The clock is ticking on every material thing and every dollar. Verse 5 gets right to the bottom of this chapter, to the joy and the pleasantness and the happiness that upholds and energizes this whole practical vision of the Christian life. As long as you don't abandon Jesus, 
You have God. He will not leave you or forsake you. In fact, as we'll see next week, he will be working in you so that you do not abandon Jesus and lose him. And so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Which relates not only to verse 5, but also to verses 1 to 3. So number three, we love and serve others. Okay. Most of chapter 13, that's a, it's a large portion. Verses 1 to 17 of chapter 13. I just don't think I have time to adequately deal with verses 1 to 3. Okay? So this will be an article. I'll send you a longer article this week. On Friday, we'll send it out. I'll talk about verses 1 to 3, which I'm so excited to talk about. It was my longest point. So children, be happy. I just cut my longest point. Okay? Here's the summary of we love and serve others. Joy in Jesus does not lead to turning in on ourselves and isolating ourselves and neglecting the needs of others or just sitting around endlessly by ourselves and enjoying the glory of Jesus as if you can really enjoy it by yourself. Rather, being pleased with his pleasantness leads to our wanting to please others with his pleasantness. Or we might say, from our fullness of joy in Jesus, we do good for others. We share. We love. So I'll read verses 1 to 3 and verse 16 and move on, and the article will come this week, God willing. Verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So we express our joy out loud. We fight to free our hearts from money. We love and serve others. Number four, we prize marriage. Verse four, we prize marriage. There's four kinds of loves in verses one to four. There's brother love, stranger love. That's what the word hospitality means, stranger love. Sympathy or compassion and marital love. And let me just say that verse 4 is for all of us. It says, among all. So it's relevant for all of us, married and single, old and young. So I want you to ask yourself in these next few moments as we linger on verse 4, what does this mean for me? It's not just applicable for marriage. What does this mean for me? How do I hold marriage in honor? Are there ways in which I'm tempted not to hold marriage in honor? Or a better question, in what ways? I'm sure there are ways. In what ways am I tempted not to hold marriage in honor? What's your heart's default perspective on marriage? Is it your salvation? If 
only had marriage? Is it your fear? Fear of commitment? Fear of what will happen? Fear of the exaggerated statistics about half marriages ending in divorce? Is it pain from your own, from your parents? Is it annoyance? Would you Christians just stop talking about marriage? Look at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So first, let's be clear about the second part of verse 4. In case what was obvious to Christians is not obvious to some today. I say this because earlier this year, there's a young congresswoman from South Carolina who professes to be a Christian while at the podium of a Christian prayer breakfast made a few comments about her live-in fiancé that made it very clear to all that they were not waiting for marriage. And she's joking about it. She's totally oblivious. Like she has no clue about verse 4. So, City's Church, we've come to verse 4. Let there be no confusion at City's Church about the second part of verse 4. Here we are at it. And we saw it last week too. Apparently, it was a live issue in the first century in the church to which Hebrews is writing. You know, they're saying all this stuff about, oh, I should go back to the old covenant and these theological questions about going back. And really, their faith has grown dull and they've compromised with the world. The issues in, among the readers of Hebrews aren't just theological. They're moral. Chapter 13 is filled with moral issues like John 4, the woman who'd had five husbands and is with another, and Jesus points that out at the well, and she's like, oh, uh, let's have a theological discussion and change the subject on that. You know, should we worship at our mountain or the mountain in Jerusalem? Very similar here in Hebrews. Last week, we saw it among the sea to it in chapter 12, verses 15 and 16. The third one was see to it that no one is sexually immoral. Same word, pornos, same word. But I love that Hebrews 13.4 puts it in a larger context. So let's linger over the first part of verse 4, which is an even higher bar of application. I think it's a far higher bar of application. Don't miss the specifics of the second part. Don't miss the vision of the first part. The first part includes the second and a lot more. So let marriage be held in honor among all. And so we ask ourselves very practically, what would it mean for me to hold marriage in honor? And to get even more specific, the word translated honor here is typically understood to have a more affectional element to it. Like, highly valued, or prize, or precious. 
like 1 Peter 1.19, the precious blood of Christ. We sang that in Christ alone, here in the precious blood of Christ. Same word, precious. Or 2 Peter 1.4, he has granted us his precious and very great promises. Hebrew is using that same word here, usually precious. So here, verse 4, like this. Let marriage be precious among all. Let it be highly valued. Let it be prized among husbands. Prize it. Among wives. Among the unmarried. Among widows. Among children. Among teenagers. And this does not entail any devaluing of singleness or childhood or widowhood. So consider how you talk about marriage. Is it often the butt of your jokes? The old ball and chain. Most comedy routines include at least a short, if not a long section about marriage and men and women, dynamics between men and women, I get it. Some of it's funny, right? Some of it can be a way of enjoying how God made us different. The world loves to pretend there's no real differences, and comedy shows us there are real differences, and everybody will laugh at the real differences. Some of it's okay. Some of it reveals a heart that does not highly value marriage. And that can shape us over time. We honor marriage and we honor God's good design by prizing it in our minds, in our hearts, in our words, and in our obedience to God's design. Number five, we seek the better city. Verse 14. This might be the most countercultural of all of the vision. This whole vision is very countercultural. Praising Jesus, hope, prizing marriage. It's a very countercultural vision. Not loving money. This fifth one here might be the most countercultural because. We live in an age so focused on, here's the term, the imminent frame. That is, what we can see and feel and touch and taste and smell. The imminent world, the phenomenological world. There's this great cultural pretense that there's nothing beyond what you can sense and see and touch. In verse 14 is not the first mention of city. In these chapters, right? We've seen this. Chapter 11, chapter 12. There's a city that is coming that you can't see and touch and taste right now. 11, chapter 11, verse 10. Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In chapter 11, verses 14 to 16. People who thus speak, that is acknowledging that they're strangers and exiles on the earth. They make it clear they're seeking a homeland. They're not at home here. They're seeking a homeland. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. So when he talks about the future city, he's not just saying first century 
There's a future city, and it's relational in the church beyond the destruction of Jerusalem. He says, heavenly. The better city is a heavenly city. And then last Sunday, we rehearsed the seven glories of Mount Zion that are not only glories to come, but already ours in some sense by faith. In chapter 12, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, the heavenly Jerusalem will someday come out of the sky to be the new heavens and new earth. And then verse 14 in our passage. Here, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. There is, in Christianity, a principled liberation from the imminent frame, from all that you can see and touch and feel and taste. Clearly, that doesn't mean that we don't love each other and love strangers, and show sympathy, and prize marriage. He just said all these things. That's his chapter. It's very practical. We don't neglect to do good and share what we have. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God, verse 16. But in it all, above it all, beneath it all, we are not finally at home here. And that actually frees us to love and serve here. We seek the city that is to come. Like Paul says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians would be really good for 2024, wouldn't it? This is such a good reminder at the end of 2023. We didn't plan this. It's just it's the end of the Hebrews. It's the end of 2023. Because next year's 2024. What is 2024? Well, it's a leap year, meaning they give us an extra day for ads, political ads. That's what the leap year's for. 2024 is an election year in this country. And in an election year, some otherwise seemingly sober-minded people lose their heads. I'm old enough now. I've seen, I'm in my 40s. I've seen it enough. I've seen the cycle over and over. Write it down. Watch it with me for the next 12 months. But as we orient on our here and now city, the polis, the city, politics, Christians, in principle, are those who say, here we have no lasting city, but we seek a better city. We seek the city that is to come, which frees us to love and serve our city and not get ours now. It's not about getting ours. We have ours, which leaves verses 7 and 17 to finish. Number six, we thank God and pray for our leaders. And here again, this, I mean, 
Chapter 13 is so countercultural. This is countercultural too. It's a very different approach than what's on offer in the world regarding leaders. Look at verse 17 first. Go down to 17 first. We'll come back to 7. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Here's my summary of verse 17. The pursuit of joy is critical, is a critical, start it again. The pursuit of joy is critical in a healthy dynamic between church leaders and their people. Now let's do this together for the rest 2023 and 2024. And it's easy to say that because thank you, God, for the congregants of Cities Church who do this so well. Here's how it works. First, Christian leaders want to do the work. 1 Timothy 3.1 talks about aspiring to the office and desiring a good work. They want to do it from joy. They set out in joy to work for the joy in Jesus of the congregation. So they seek to persuade the people and convince them, win them from the heart with God's word. They don't demand raw obedience. That's not how Christian leadership works. They don't demand raw obedience. You may ask, what about that word obey? Beginning of verse 17. Obey here comes from the same word that typically means convince or persuade or make confident or win trust. This is essentially what it means in three other uses of this word in Hebrews, including the next verse. <laughs> Look at verse 18. The word sure here, the same word as the word sure. Pray for us, for we are sure, meaning we're convinced, we're persuaded, we're confident that we have a clear conscience. Right? Second then, the people, if they're spiritually healthy, want to be led by worthy leaders. There's not a deep instinct to throw off all leadership. They're eager to be taught eager to be persuaded from the word, eager to be convinced. They have a disposition to yield to and receive worthy leadership. And being so won by their leaders from the word, they gladly submit. Now to clarify, this submission is not in the context of a congregational meeting where the church assembles and the elders come to the podium to say, all right, church, submit to us. No, 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 no. In, in, when, the, when the congregation's gathered to make decisions, the elders are there to serve. There's not a call to submit to any and every elder recommendation at a congregational meeting. It's a call to be persuaded by the word and submit to the word as it's faithfully taught from Scripture. As you're persuaded, as you're convinced from Scripture. And in this disposition, wise Christians know that it will be to their own advantage and gain if their, labor, if their leaders labor with joy and not groaning. If we are groaning pastors, 
it will be to your detriment. This doesn't mean that it's the church's job to make the leaders happy. It also means that it's not the church's job to make the leaders miserable, which we can say and smile about because, City's Church, you've been so gracious to us. You make it easy to labor happily and without groaning. Thank God for that. The healthiest dynamic in the church is leaders who don't presume submission, but they seek to persuade and win the people with the word from the heart and a congregation that isn't just willing, but eager to be led and persuaded by its leadership. So verse 17 is about present leaders. And then it's closed with verse seven, which is about past leaders. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Notice he says, your leaders spoke to you the word. He doesn't say, remember among your leaders, there was one or a couple of them who spoke to you the word of God. He just identifies leadership with speaking the word of God. That's how it works in Christianity. Christianity is a teaching movement. Good leaders teach. And good teachers in time with exemplary lives come to lead. The authority for Christian leadership comes from the word. It is not in us. It is in Jesus, in his gospel, and in the scriptures. So we're people of the book as Christians And our leaders are to be men of the book who teach and lead from the book. And their words and their way of life go together. They not only speak the word, but they model a way of life. A way of finishing their course that validates their words. Words and way belong together. Words give meaning to way of life. And way of life models and confirms words. But notice this. This this is subtle here. Hebrews doesn't say to imitate their way of life. And we're talking about past leaders here. Not leaders in your own generation. Past leaders. He doesn't say to imitate their way of life. Rather, he says, imitate their faith. A new generation has come with its own challenges. A new generation encounters slightly different circumstances and contexts than before. Times do change, although it is really easy to overstate it and over-anticipate it. Situations change, and the particular expressions of love that are required in a particular generation may vary. But, he says... Imitate their faith. Why? Because faith focuses on its object, who is the same yesterday and today. So above all, imitate this about about your leaders in the past, these past leaders we celebrate. They followed Jesus. They leaned on him, trusted him, looked to him, staked everything on him. And Jesus proved himself to be reliable. 
and steady and trustworthy in every generation for 20 centuries. And so he will be the same for us. Whatever challenges we face and however anxious you are about them, from one generation to the next, to the next, he is the same yesterday for them and today for us. Now, sameness on its own isn't necessarily glorious. I mean, Satan's always been a liar. He's the father of lies. It's a disgrace, not a glory, that Satan's the same as he's been. But if someone tells the truth and is the truth, then their enduring sameness accentuates and sweetens the glory of their truth-telling. And when someone, namely Jesus, is better than any standard of comparison, the question remains, will that change? Okay, I get that he's been better. Maybe right now I experience him as better. Will he always be better? He may have proven himself to be enough for the previous generation. Will he be enough for us? And to that, Hebrews says, he is the same yesterday and today. Gloriously the same. Constant, steady, immutable, unchangeable. And then he adds, and forever. To the ages. He is the same in that he's God and will not change. And the holy God took on humanity suffered and died for us, rose again, ascended, is seated at God's right hand in glorified humanity, and he is gloriously the same in his glorified humanity he took to save us. Doubly the same. What's underneath this whole chapter is that Jesus is better, and that will not change. He's not only better right now, he will always be better he will not lose his betterness. We will not lose our grounds for joy for being pleased in God and living to please him. So we come to the table. Verse 10 mentions an altar. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent, that is the Jewish priest under the first covenant, from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Let's look at this contrast between Old Covenant and New Covenant. This altar for Christians is not, first and foremost, the Lord's table. As if Hebrews is saying, Jews have their food and we have ours. When verse 10 says, we have an altar, he means sacrifice and blood of Jesus. The cross, the cross is the place where the sacrifice is made for uniting man and God. Jesus at the cross is our altar. He died to make us holy and happy. We're not strengthened by ritual foods, but our hearts are strengthened by grace. And that's what we come to do at the table. This is a way of remembering 
You're not strengthened by just eating this bread or drinking the cup. We're strengthened by grace through faith in remembering our altar. So the pastors will come. This is a meal for the members of City's Church. But if you'd stay with us this morning, he's my altar. And have you eat with us in faith. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.